as every listener heard over and over again, staying on the air was a constant struggle. To afford the airtime, Fletcher was dependent on membership dues for his PASI Citizens Intelligence Group, occasional speaking fees, and direct cash contributions. And while the five minutes to midnight fan base was dedicated, they weren't particularly wealthy. So Fletcher was always on the hunt for sponsors, though, of course, he would never phrase it that way. Advertisers are constantly approaching us about our program because they know how dedicated our listeners are. And they know we only deal with companies that meet our rigorous standards for values and integrity. And that's why I'm so happy to introduce a new advertiser on the show, the Dumas Landy Precious Metals Group. Here to explain how you can use their services to protect your assets from the collapse of fiat currency are Shad Kangerhern and Shad Nichlau. Welcome everyone. Welcome to Dumas Landa. Here to answer all of your investing questions in the precious metals. We are very happy to support his online show. Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, it's so gorgeous. On his shortwave radio show about... This is the perfect audience for a unique investment opportunity. Dumas Landa is offering you a chance to invest in heavy precious metals. Precious metals, they're everywhere. Look around your house, there's precious metals as far as you could see. Ever since... Herr Nixon took you off the gold standard. You've all your money is just paper versus nothing. Who is who is Nixon to say that gold is standard? Gold is very rare. Gold is very precious. Very different colors of gold. No standard colors is what we you invest mean. it for you. We take the money. We invest it in the gold. Gold is the old metal to invest in. We will invest in all the newest metals that you are aware of: aluminum foils, galvanized pipes, copper pennies. Have you invested in copper pennies before? It's a very unique of investment opportunity. We we can take the money and multiply the money with the precious metals. We have tables of multiplication that we use to multiply all the tables. It all goes in the spreadsheet, no? Oh, we have a good spreadsheet. We use Quicken. We put the, the accounting very quickly in the Quicken. We also invest in not just in copper pennies, We'd say copper wires from schools, new plumbing from housing projects. The glimmer of precious metals, it will save you, it will provide for the future of your family, yes? Now, we don't have much time in this spot to explain to you how this works, but you send us your money, we will buy the metals for you. We buy the metals and we hold them in a very secure location. Yes, in our hands. But it all goes into spreadsheet. And in the bag. No one knows that the metals are in the bag. And we got to fly to Bermuda and we'll meet you there for our investment seminar. We will provide a, what is a dividend, a, a return on the investment. And the more investors you get on board with us, we might give you a return. You say to your family, are you interested in a unique business opportunity? So we were working together in a coffee shop in Berlin. Right. And I saw things flashing on the screen. People get rich. They're making crypto trades. I don't trust it. All these small acronyms moving across the bottom with numbers that go up, they go down. But we thought, let's stick to something real and we can make a big success at this. Help you to help us. Help us help you and us. By you send us anything you can. Send us the money. We buy the gold. We buy the, the pennies. We buy the catalytic converters. We can give you half of it back if you get twice as many people to invest. Now we have twice as much money. This is how the investment opportunity grows. And it works. This is not gambling like the stock market. That's right. This is the Dumas Landa investment opportunity.
But for all of these complications and difficulties, Fletcher was able to keep the radio show and other efforts, like his Aletheia newsletter, going for nearly a decade. In some ways, the 1990s were the high point of his relevance and profile in the conspiracist and patriot movements. But on the other hand, the decade was dotted with tragedies that uniquely impacted his psyche and eventually how he viewed the mission that had carried him this far. And while the cracks wouldn't show for years, it's clear that something important broke within Fletcher as he watched a uniquely American tragedy unfold back in 1993. The first evening of what turned out to be the nearly two-month standoff, Fletcher actually interrupted his ongoing Babylon Falling series to address the crisis. To him, the facts of the case were clear. Ladies and gentlemen, after years of provocation and threats, and even small skirmishes to test the resolve of patriots, Today, the real power behind the totalitarian, socialistic, globalist government of the United States has declared war against freedom-loving Americans. It started when they murdered Vicki Weaver and her infant in a show of merciless force, and now federal agents are holding a church hostage, including its children. <laughs> Make no mistake, this is a signal. The Branch Davidians are the first of an endless series of planned assaults. This is a sign of more to come. We will be rounded up soon and we will be re-educated. Unless we stand with those brave people in Waco right now and fight. You didn't have to be a card-carrying, paranoid, megalomaniac conspiracy theorist like Fletcher to think that something was very wrong with the ATF siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. David Koresh was, of course, a sexually manipulative Svengali, with a number of legitimate warrants out for his arrest. But he was also regularly jogging outside of the compound's gates, where it would have been easy to detain him without collateral damage. He also loved to show off his muscle car, roaring it into town with one or another of his many wives he had claimed for himself. So why didn't they just wait until he stepped out of his... 68 Black Camaro.
Clearly, the government could have done this arrest in a quiet way. And just as clearly, they instead decided on a big, spectacular headline bust to salvage their reputations after the Randy Weaver debacle a year before. And we all, unfortunately, are familiar with the result. Fletcher, this was the final indictment of the lazy, so-called patriots who had gobbled up his words without ever doing anything to make a change in their federal, state, or even local government. The flaming deaths of these people he laid not only at the feet of the agents, the attorney general, and the president, but at those who knew the truth, but sat on their hands. And it's those people who truly broke his heart. But for all of his righteous anger at the do-nothings in the movement, there was certainly some good publicity in the outcry that followed the Waco debacle. Seeing how horrifically their government could fuck up a single arrest 
led the American public, specifically the white part of it, toward a huge surge in interest in exactly the kind of alternate history-embracing, secret society-opposing, New World Order-destroying, militia-forming movements that Fletcher espoused. And he welcomed them, sometimes in person, as was the case with a longtime fan who moved from his home in Nevada to live near Fletcher and support his efforts, a fellow vet named Grant Foley. Well, Fletcher was much older than I was. Um, we both had our wars. His Vietnam and my mine was Desert Storm. We both came back from it, you know, personally fucked up, and uh, but also convinced something was very wrong with our country and the people who run it. I listened to Five Minutes for years, uh, and then invited him out to speak to my church about what's really going on behind the scenes. Uh, I was so impressed with the man. I, I thought he was going to be the leader of something great. And I decided I wanted to be one of his lieutenants. Um, no wife, no kids at the time. So I just pulled up stakes, moved out to New Mexico. I got a job and I started helping Fletcher in the cause on the side. Grant was the first of a number of dedicated followers who moved into Fletcher's orbit over those years but probably the most consequential listeners he ever had were the two who drove hours out of their way to meet the man as he was putting the finishing touches on the first issue of his newspaper, Alethea. Yeah, 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 they were a little strange. Uh, The tall, thin one particularly set my teeth on edge. I know something off about him. Uh, The meeting started out normal enough, the stocky one showed up at the warehouse we were working at and asked if Marvell James Fletcher was anywhere around town. I was in the middle of pressing the first run of Alethea at the time. I walked back to the back room uh, to see how Fletcher felt about meeting some fans. Yo, a couple guys out here said they drove a bunch of hours to meet you. You available? Huh? Sh- yeah. Send them in. The two walked in, uh, clearly a little starstruck. Um, They made some small talk about the drive, though they didn't want to say where they were driving from or to exactly. But fair enough. I don't need to know their business. But but yeah, then, then it started to get a little weird. They wanted to know if Fletcher knew anything about selling some revolutionary war artifacts they had acquired. Uh, no, I can't say I know anything about selling antiquities. Maybe if it's the uh, genuine article, you might talk with the museum. I see. No, um, we're looking for a private sale. Thanks, though. No, sorry, couldn't be more helpful, but... Is there anything else? Well, I, um... Don't know exactly how to say this. We're on a mission to do something that will get this country back on track. Now, don't ask. Um, We don't want to talk about the details. But it's going to be a big deal, and you'll know it when you see it. All right. I hope you men aren't planning anything rash or We were hoping maybe you could give us some advice or words of wisdom. Well, 
useless. I don't know what you're aiming to do. I don't know what kind of advice I can give to you. I get that. It's all right. Thanks anyway. I could tell the meeting was over, so I started showing them out of Fletcher's office when the tall one, who had been totally silent until that moment, turned around at the door and asked, Mr. Fletcher, if we get pulled over while we're on this mission, like by highway patrol, what should we do? What do you mean, pulled over why? Like, for a ticket. Well, I don't know, what's your legal status? You got any warrants? I don't. Well, then I think you just take the ticket and be on your way. All right. Nothing else? What do you mean? I mean, if I have a gun and I get a chance, you think I should take it? Leave the world with one less cop? I got what? Why would you shoot someone over a traffic ticket? Okay, sir. Thanks for that. I suppose you're welcome. And the two went on their way. Fletcher and I had some laughs uh, later over how weird they were, especially that tall one. But you know, then we both, we forgot about it for a while. Until a few months later, April 19th, 1995. The chaos in downtown Oklahoma City did indeed resemble Beirut after what police believed to be a 1,200-pound car bomb ripped through the nine-story federal building shortly after 9 o'clock this morning. More than 500 people were already in their offices, and at least 50 children were in a daycare center. The two-year anniversary of Waco, yeah, Fletcher was all over that story, of course. You see, the way he figured it, the bombing was a conspiracy between the usual suspects, the secret rulers and their puppet government stooges, but, but this time, working with traitors inside the Patriot Movement to create a false flag that could be blamed on the movement itself. And then those wanted posters started circulating. And the ones that ended up identifying Timothy McVeigh. Fletcher talked about how, what a perfect patsy this loner, this weird former army guy was. He talked around it and around it. But then finally, it must have been 2000, 2001, when he finally got around to it, he admitted they were the fans who would come to meet him in person. God, no. I, I told him, don't shoot at policemen in cold blood over a traffic ticket. And they left. And as they got into the car, the other man, the, the one who did most of the talking, told me and Foley to, to watch Oklahoma City and that's what he said. And yes, there's no question. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols visited me. And of course, I didn't know. How could I have known? But I will admit, friends, that meeting has haunted me. These are men who love my work, who had my books, who were regular listeners. And to have them do this. Not that they did it by themselves. Certainly, the fingerprints of the conspiracy are all over this, along with their traitors' lackeys and our own ranks. And But I have tortured myself for years now with one question. Did, I, did anything I said, anything, contribute to that horror? 
Did I did I do anything to inspire those monstrous acts? responders at the scene he was long gone 
things quieted down for a while in Fletcher's life after OKC. He launched a few ambitious projects, like a leather-bound set of his most influential speeches and essays, priced at nearly $100. It was a boondoggle. Unsold copies piled up in his warehouse. And his finances got even more precarious. And then eventually, in 1998, he learned that his decision to not pay the income taxes he claimed were voluntary had come back to haunt him. Well, it's finally happened. Because Julie and I refused to appear in their kangaroo court to answer these absurd tax charges, there's now what's called a bench warrant out for our arrest. Well, they can issue all the warrants they want, leave them in a neat pile in a P.O. box that I keep downtown, and I'll pick them up eventually because we can always use fire starters for the wood stove. But anyone charged with enforcing those orders would be wise not to set foot on this hill because we will defend ourselves against all illegitimate authority. And if you're listening, FBI, ATF, and other lackeys of our current system, I want to tell you I understand what it's like to fight a phony war. To sacrifice your blood, the blood of your friends, and the service of a lie, but it's time to admit you're on the wrong side. Supporting an unlawful, dictatorial regime. Take a stand, refuse your orders, and even better yet, come and join us in the defense of liberty. We can use all the guns we can get. Several dozen armed, true believers answered Fletcher's call to defend his hill. Imagine a small-scale version of the Bundy Ranch standoff in 2014. Eyewitnesses say there were men with long rifles patrolling Cooper's Ridge for weeks, maybe even months. And not just the house and the hill itself. They also set up checkpoints in front of the abandoned drive-in theater at the base of the hill, which Fletcher had long claimed was part of the original parcel of land he purchased. But ironically, agents in charge of his tax case were trying to de-escalate the situation especially Special Agent Dale Gordon. I'd met Fletcher a number of times over the years. Not a surprise, given the circles he ran in. Eventual law enforcement confrontations are kind of a given. Mostly, he wanted to hear tales from the field, swap war stories, talk shop. Be respected like an equal. When I went up there to meet him after that tax warrant was issued, uh, I don't know. He looked different, haunted. Skin was sagging, sallow, and shaven. Clearly drunk and belligerent. I got the feeling he was spoiling for a fight. Not quite a suicide by cop situation, but a little too close. I encouraged our team to back off and take the long view. We didn't want anything like Randy Weaver or Waco to happen again. And over a tax warrant? Ah, I just wasn't willing to spill blood, ours or his, or especially Julie and the kids. The way I saw it, I didn't care if Fletcher died someday with that warrant still unserved. By the looks of him, that day was coming. But of course, Fletcher didn't know that. He probably wouldn't have believed it, even if he was told. He knew the attack was imminent, and the pressure made all of his bad traits, his drinking, his erratic mood swings, his violent temper, all of it, much, much worse. Yeah. I was there the day it happened. I was with Fletcher a lot during those years, so I saw the relationship with Julie dissolve over time. 
And they were basically just prisoners on that mountain. Afraid if they left, they'd get arrested. He got drunk, ruined a lot of holidays. I could see the toll that was taken on her and the kids. But what I didn't know was that she had started moving their stuff in her station wagon. I mean, she must have been doing it behind the scenes for days, maybe weeks. And then Fletcher happened to glance in the back windshield on the way to feed the dog. It turned into a screaming fight. He blustered, he threatened, but eventually he was just begging him to stay. I remember the kids wailing. I remember the little faces pressed to the windows. Julie just tearing out the cloud of dust. Fletcher on his fucking knees. I felt like hell for the guy. I did. But I think she made the right decision, especially with what happened later. But that, that was the beginning of the end for him. I almost couldn't bring myself to get on the microphone tonight. The weight of that horrible story out of Colorado. It's hard for me to comprehend, but it it's exactly the kind of thing I warned you about in Red Horse, our nation has handed over the job of raising its children to psychiatrists, drug companies, Madison Avenue, and NTV, and no wonder they're turning out to be a generation of killers. Uh, I, I don't want to talk about who's to blame right now. The grief of those parents who lost children. I've lost children. It's unimaginable pain, and thank God I made the decision to send my wife and my little ones away weeks ago to keep them safe from the constant threat of assault that we live under up here on the hill. Parents of Columbine, my heart breaks for you. The news kept getting worse. Still trapped under his self-imposed isolation, Fletcher learned in late 99 that his beloved mother was on her deathbed. He had long ago destroyed his relationships with his siblings. Now, with his mom dying, he was losing his last link to the family he'd loved in his youth. Right now, my mother, Lynn Wallace Fletcher, is slipping in and out of a coma in a hospital in California. I desperately wish I could be by her side. As we know, my fight against this tyranny has stranded me up here with only a few loyal friends like Grant Foley. But no wife, no children, and now the woman who gave me life is in the process of losing hers. I know I'm not a perfect man, far from it. And I can get angry and snap. I've driven away people who love me, but when you see your country slipping away from you, it it can make your blood boil. And I've never claimed to be some avatar of this movement. I'm just like you. I'm never up on a pedestal. I'm a human being. That's not an excuse. And so all I can do is tell all of you, my audience, the only family that I have left, to hold your loved ones close, take nothing for granted. And to my my sweet mother, if you're still tethered to this world or if 
you've slipped into the next. Know that your boy loves you and that you are not alone. one bright spot during those last couple of years out of nowhere one day he got a letter from his daughter no uh, not as not it not his and julie's kids oh no by then she was trying to clear tax troubles with the feds and was staying away from fletcher no this was uh his daughter by his fifth wife carla maggie his oldest girl they hadn't set eyes on each other 20 years but she decided she needed a father and and fletcher sure needed somebody so he called her and it went pretty well she ended up coming to visit the house in the spring of 2000 um they even recorded a radio show together (laughs) yeah yeah uh seeing the two of them that was magical there was an instant family connection no you don't have to move anything Am I supposed to just talk straight into it? That's exactly right. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, five minutes to midnight audience, meet my daughter, Maggie Grace Fletcher, 20 years old and the most beautiful young woman you have ever seen. 
My father is a great exaggerator. <laughs> Far from it. I'm pleased to see you got your mother's features. And, unfortunately, your temper and fondness for whiskey. Apologies for my genetics, dear Maggie, but, uh... Oh, God. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I, I can't put into words how amazing this moment is. Seeing this, uh, this person who's torn from me... To have her reach out and suddenly, she's here. I'm very glad to be here, too. I've met some people over the years who found out I was your daughter. You have some oddball fans. I hope they were respectful. I'd say so. One of them offered to be my bodyguard for free. But it's nice to be sitting here with Marvell James Fletcher, my dad. That's enough for me. Having you here is more than I could have ever hoped for. Um, yeah, but what Maggie said about her temper and her love of the bottle. Oh, yeah, that was true. I mean, she wasn't here more than a week. And they were drunkenly having it out. Her screaming at him about abandoning the family and him complaining that she was just like her mother. And it was sad. I mean, it was so sad. Because if you knew Fletcher, it was so predictable. And in the middle of the night, with him raving and throwing shit in the back of the house, she got all of her stuff, ran down to the front gates of the drive-in at the bottom of the hill, and took a taxi back to the bus station. Fletcher called her dozens of times. Dozens of times. She wouldn't have nothing to do with him. She wouldn't even talk to him. And that, that was the last straw. From then on, I, Fletcher was just looking for a way to die.
this low point, though, Fletcher had one amazing trick up his sleeve. In late June of 2001, he started talking about a CNN reporter who had tracked down and interviewed the terrorist leader Osama bin Laden, one of the most wanted men on Earth. So they expect us to believe that the security services of the U.S., our allies, even Israel, have had no luck tracking down this man, this mastermind behind the bombing of the USS Cole last year? But then this goofy nerd in a khaki vest just walks up and sticks a microphone in his face? Does anyone out there believe that? Obviously, there are only two possible explanations. Either everyone in every international intelligence service is a rank incompetent, and I can hear many of you out there yelling that you bet on that option. I hear you out there. But I think the real reason is this. They created this man, this Bin Laden. They funded him. They turned him into a representation of pure evil. And this sudden visibility tells me they're planning something. Something big. Mark my words. And of course, I hardly need to tell you how legendary that prediction became a few months later. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. Fletcher was on the air all day on September 11th essentially generating the two most popular 9-11 truther arguments, that Bush either made 9-11 happen or deliberately let it happen, live, on air, within hours of the event itself. He went on to make a number of other predictions during that broadcast that would cement his legend as a sort of Cassandra among conspiracy theorists. So with the ruins still smoking and no one claiming responsibility... They somehow know for certain that bin Laden is responsible. Hmm. I can tell you what happens next, ladies and gentlemen. Within weeks, we will be bombing two or three countries whose regimes we don't like. And we'll be excusing it based on these attacks and the instant conclusion that they were perpetrated by Muslim terrorists. And Mr. and Mrs. American citizen... They're coming for you, too. They'll be drafting the broadest possible legislation to curtail our civil rights in the name of stopping terrorism. And they'll convince you to support it because nothing will ever be the same again. And if I can make one final prediction, one night they're going to come into my house and they're going to murder me. Sometime soon, because they can't have me saying, all of these things and being right over and over and over again.
The events that led to Fletcher's death started with some unexplained lights in the sky. It's the kind of thing that happens out in the West sometimes. Weather, secret military planes, or aliens, or whatever causes it. Sometimes for a few nights, or sometimes for a week or more, people will see lights up there streaking this way and that. Old naval pilots called them Foo Fighters. Anyway, this local lawyer, his wife and kids, decided they wanted to watch the show one night and drove out to see the whole sky from the abandoned driveway. It hadn't been there 10 minutes before Fletcher tears up in his truck, his big dog barking and snarling, waving a pistol around, drunk out of his mind, telling him to get the fuck off of his land. Well, now, the way I heard it later, that lawyer went into the sheriff's office the next day uh, demanding somebody finally do something about what he called the Fletcher situation. Well, the sheriff was newly elected and wanted to make a name for himself. So he decided if the feds weren't going to handle Fletcher, by God, he would. I wasn't there when this happened. Uh, you know, I mean, Fletcher had most likely done something to piss me off. And I probably told him to go fuck off for like the 50th time. Um, so I was keeping my distance that night. But now the story, the story sounds right. Uh, he signed off the show. He grabbed his bottle and uh, this laser disc copy of the Parallax View that I bought for him in, off eBay. Um, he had his generator uh, hooked up uh, to the projection booth in the drive-in. And he rigged it so he could watch his movies on that big screen. And he could listen to this old clip-on speaker box on the side of his truck. So he, he didn't even hear him sneaking up behind him. But when that deputy pointed that gun at him, tried to open his door oh he floored it he floored he floored it in reverse he almost killed uh, two of those guys but then he ran up and hit some rocks and just busted the hell out of the axle and from there limped uh, all the way maybe a hundred yards back to his door
nearly made it when they caught him. The first one he shot, he hit him in the neck. That was Deputy Green, who was paralyzed to this day. And then the rest of them, they just shot into pieces. They shot into pieces, and it was just like he predicted. There's no way out the There's no way out. There's no way out the There's no way The most ironic part of the story was that the only broadcaster who had wall-to-wall coverage of Fletcher's death was the one he hated the most, a young, red-faced Texas bloviator named Alex Jones. Folks, we are getting reports. I can't keep up with this stuff. We're getting reports that the shooting of Marvell James Fletcher was the first phase of an ongoing strike against the leaders of the Patriot movement. We're already hearing they're rounding them up in Michigan, Wisconsin, and other Midwestern states, and the southern states appear to be next. Rest assured, we're redoubling our security here at HQ, so they're not going to take us without a fight. And we have a call on the line from one of Marvell's friends. Not many people know this, but everybody closest to him called Fletcher Marvell. Hello, caller. Who's on the line? This is Grant Foley. And how do you know Marvell, Mr. Foley? I've been Fletcher's right-hand man for about the past six years. And nobody called him Marvell, you lying sack of shit. Okay, okay, calm down, Mr. Foley. All right, I know tensions are high and we're all grief-stricken about Marvell's death. Let me ask you this. Are the reports true that they stormed his house while he was sleeping and shot him in the back? Were, were you proud of Marvell that he managed to shoot one of those stormtroopers in the head in spite of how bad they had wounded him? None of that's how it went down. You piece of garbage. Fletcher hated your guts. Did, did you know that? He listened to your 
your babble, he'd call you Jabba the fuck. He titled the whole episode after you. He called it Alex Jones, a liar. The way you pull things out of your ass, you do no research, try to scare people without offering a solution, you're everything he hated most on this earth. You gotta pack it up now, disappear and fade out. Wanna set me free? Oh, okay. All right, look, I, I'm sorry. It, it looks like we've lost our connection to Mr. Foley, who claimed to be a friend of Marvell Fletcher's, though I don't remember meeting him the many times I visited Cooper's Ridge in the past. All right, let's. We're, we we have someone else. Caller, caller, you're on the air. What do you have to say about this illegal execution of a great patriot? I tell you one thing, Alex. I don't think that feller knew Marvell at all. I think he probably just showed up after the fact to try and cash in on his death. You hate to see it. I'll I'll tell you, caller. I'm getting some information now that indicates you're right. Uh, but now let's return to our other top story. Allegations of black magic ceremonies in the basement of the Miami City Council offices. Joining us now is. Was the sad end of a strange life. He's buried there on his hill under an inscription he chose for himself. Marvel James Fletcher, American Patriot. He was a difficult, contrarian, angry, sometimes violent man who inspired fealty and awe in those around him. He was a braggart and a liar who had an uncanny knack for seeing truths that no one else could see. He was a serial abandoner of families, who spent his whole life seeking love and acceptance. He believed in research, unless your research contradicted. He railed against the apathy of his fellow Americans, but for his last years, he spent them, most of the time, off the air in a drunken haze, accomplishing nothing. He loved his country and inspired those who wounded it terribly. He was a series of deep contradictions, and in that way, he was profoundly American.
This has been a special presentation of the musical biography Upon a Pale Horse by the Paranoid Strain Orchestra. Our pseudonymous voice acting cast included Howard Munch as the tall man who turned out to be Timothy McVeigh, Scott Frisco as FBI Special Agent Gordon, Gerth Benelux as Paul Fletcher, Georgia Manticore as our CNN reporter, Lady Jesuit portrayed Carla, that's wife number five, Hank Hooper was Fletcher's childhood friend, Dickie Garfield. Chia Merengue, a.k.a. Mrs. Lucifer Jones, was Darlene Starguide Buffington, Fletcher's hippie publisher. Eight Mile Ridge Hoss portrayed both Zeke Thomas, Fletcher's Vietnam buddy, and Terry Nichols. By popular demand, the 40-year-old boy returned as Alex Jones. I.R.I.E. appeared as Disciple, sang lead on Brightest Star, and classed up a bunch of other songs with his background vocals. Isabeau Noir portrayed Linda, that's wife number four, and she also sang a duet on the song Amputee Love. Haney Ikes was Fletcher's daughter Maggie, who also sang the lead on Wasn't Right. Johnny Quest, or as Straniacs might know him, the inimitable former Fed reporter Breen, played Bruce LGM Brattle Jr. The Paranoid Strain's own art director, Willem UFO, was Fletcher's last friend standing, Grant Foley. Sodom E. Jones portrayed our indefatigable narrator, and finally, Fletcher himself was none other than Touch Beckham. We were also, of course, blessed, or some might say cursed, by the talents of Chad 1 and Chad 2, the duo collectively known as Stupidland, whose exploits were engineered and mixed by Big Mucho. On to the music. About half of our basic tracks were laid down at Gorilla Studios under the watchful eye of Charlie Swade, who also played a mean pedal steel on King Jesus. And now, let's introduce the amazing Paranoid Strain Orchestra. Squonkus once again did all of our saxophoning and is our secret weapon. Lucifer Jones drummed the shit out of these songs, plus played some miscellaneous percussion. He is also our resident perfectionist, so he's the reason a lot of these songs sounded much tighter than they might otherwise have. The Mighty Mighty Moisty is our lead guitarist and trumpet player, as well as the composer or co-writer of a bunch of fucking awesome songs, including some phenomenal instrumentals, as well as the astonishing Shellfish Toxin Pellet Gun, which he also sang. He's a ball of talent in an unassuming package. Turd Ferguson not only played all of the bass, occasional guitar, and even a few keyboard lines, he actually recorded almost half of these tracks in his own studio space, wrote a number of absolute bangers, including that theme song to Five Minutes to Midnight that you can't get out of your head. He also played one of the FBI agents who gloated over Fletcher after his bike wreck. Oh, and did I mention that he produced all of the final mixes you heard here and managed not to stab anyone else in the band after the 15th time we asked him to tweak the same track? He also loaned us a song from his other band, The Apprehenchmen, that's A-P-P-R-E-H-E-N-C-H-M-E-N, whose stuff is available on Bandcamp. They're great, and you should check them out. Daniel Arizona wrote, or co-wrote, around 40 of the songs you just heard. Yeah, I said 40. For real, more than three dozen songs. He sang the vast majority of them as well. He played rhythm guitar, the occasional lead line, and portrayed both a gloating FBI agent and Stanley Kubrick. He has been one of my best friends for 30 years. He's irreplaceable, and somebody should pay him a million dollars to crank out tunes. Let me know if you know a guy. Finally, let's not forget the other key Paranoid Strain personnel. Willem UFO, the creator of the entire visual identity of the Paranoid Strain, was also responsible for the amazing Gatefold album art you're no doubt feasting your eyes on as you listen to this. If your podcatcher doesn't display our per-episode art, make sure you check it out at the Google Drive link I've included in the show notes. 
You'll also find full lyrics and credits for all songs at that same link. If you've ever marveled at how much more visual presence this show has than other podcasts, all of the credit goes to that guy. Dana Unicorn surprisingly didn't do shit for this album. What gives? Seriously, though, the only reason she didn't appear is that I wanted this to be very different than the Paranoid Strain meta-focused 9116 rock opera story. But I couldn't let anything this big go out without having her voice appear on it somewhere, so she's gonna say the next bit. Finally, Fearful Jesuit played the acoustic and electric pianos, organs, synths, and the melodica. He also wrote a couple of songs. You can tell because he sang them. With few exceptions, all listed in the aforementioned lyric sheet at the Google Drive link in the show notes, the Paranoid Strain Orchestra uses the Beatles' tried-and-true, whoever-wrote-it-sang-it rule. He also wrote the script, recorded, produced, and mixed all of the non-music stuff, and assembled the final audio. And he loves each and every one of you very, very much. But not as much as Dana does. By the way, if you're a Patreon subscriber, or if you become one in the future at patreon.com forward slash the Paranoid Strain, I'll be sending out a Google Drive link where you can download the entirety of Upon a Red Horse, all five acts, as a single file. So keep a lookout for that. A final note, this whole project would never have happened if I hadn't read Pale Horse Rider, Mark Jacobson's phenomenal biography of the life and times of Milton William Cooper, a troubled, troubling, fascinating man. I strongly recommend you pick up a copy. From all of us at the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, we hope you've enjoyed this thing as much as we enjoyed putting it together. And as always, we remind you that the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically. <laughs>